And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here with the uh, latest episode of the Bridge Daily. This is a special one, special program today, because we have a special guest. So I'm going to let you think here for a minute while I give you some clues as to who this could possibly be. All right? He is a renowned scientist, a renowned activist, an author, a broadcaster, a grandfather, He's done a lot of things. Are you starting to get the hint here? First time I worked with him, and he won't even remember this, first time I worked with him was in the fall of 1984. He was already a rock star. I wasn't even in the galaxy at that point. But we were dealing with a very serious issue at that time, the fall of 1984. It was the drought in Ethiopia, and the world was starting to respond. And David Suzuki was my guest on a special program that we were doing on CBC Television, trying to help us understand what was going on at that time. David Suzuki joins us from his home. It's been his home for 40 years, overlooking English Bay on the Pacific Ocean, just on the edge of Vancouver. David Suzuki, welcome. I don't remember that 1984 interview, though. Uh, Gosh, that takes us way back. It sure does. We actually did it. It was a kind of a town hall kind of thing it was in the oh, yeah. it was in the uh in one of the studios in toronto and you came in to talk about it and you know those were d- difficult times and we're facing difficult times again and before we get to the specific reason of why you're here to talk to me today i i want to try and get your sense of the moment that we're in because this is a moment this last eight or nine months that will be you know, will be talked about for decades, if not centuries. I mean, we still talk about the 1918-19 flu, the pandemic Mm -hmm. that killed so many people around the world. And we're looking at something very similar right now. So in your words, how how do you describe this moment that we're we're living through right now? Uh, I think it is certainly a big warning that we can't go on living the the way we are. We're just not able to to handle this, and we've had a number of warnings with Ebola and and with uh, with Hantavirus, with MERS, with SARS. You know, we've kind of escaped uh, escaped the bullet on those, but uh, this one coming along shows that we simply were not adequately uh, prepared. And I think people should understand that the vast majority of diseases that we encounter come from nature. They are generated in other animals and jump from them to uh, to us. And, you know, you think about Hanta and Ebola and HIV, and you could go down a list of all the ones that we've been familiar with this century, Zika and, and uh, oh, gosh, what are some of the, the others? And... Uh, as we, what, what happens often is viruses jump from one species to another. And when that happens, the viruses in the new host can mix with other viruses the host is carrying. We all carry viruses in our genomes and they can mix up and you get suddenly a brand new kind of virus emerging from that. Well, what's happening now is that as we cut and burn and flood areas of wilderness, we're pushing animals closer and closer together that don't normally share those ecosystems. They're separate. 
And so we're going to get more of these viruses jumping out. And, uh, you know, if HIV had been a virus that was uh, spread by, by air, that would have been the one. Remember when it first, uh, we first started learning about it, it has a long period when it doesn't, it's uh, asymptomatic. You don't see any effect of it for up to years. And meanwhile, we're spreading it through blood and semen. Um, that would have spread silently through the, uh, through the population and uh, would have been pretty, pretty serious, I think. So how did we, so, how did we miss this one coming? I mean, as you, as you say, there were things we did know. How did yeah. we not see this coming? Well, we've had the warnings. I mean, uh, you know, we know that um, many of the uh, the flus have come out of China, and uh, that's because they uh, grow, they they have uh, ducks and, and geese that they grow in with pigs and other things uh, that are br- brought close together, and so swine flus and that jump out, and a lot of them do come from. China. Apparently, this one comes from the wet markets. They eat a lot of wildlife, and they're, uh, you know, one of the uh, precursors of COVID nineteen. Very early on, they said it it came from pangolins, pangolins and bats. I bet you most of your listeners have never even heard of a pangolin. No, you know, it's a <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible animal. It's it's got armor scales. Uh, not like an armadillo, but it can roll up in a ball protected by these. It's a magnificent animal. It's endangered. I didn't realize that until the first reports came out. But it's it's a mammal. It's a very unusual animal. And apparently the Chinese eat them uh, as they do bats. And so uh, the way that we're bringing nature into our uh, our habitat is obviously capable of generating new kinds of viruses as well. Let me say that one of the things that is coming out of this now is, uh, you know, both the uh, the the uh, hot the 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 hot vaccines that seem to be coming out, Pfizer and uh, what's the other one, Tar? Moderna. Mm-hmm. They are using a radically different technique, and I'm very very excited by it because it could very well be the basis for a whole raft of new vaccines. Uh, as new viruses come out, it's a, a brilliant way to deal with it. And I'm amazed at the at the results of both both Moderna and Pfizer uh, have had. So that's one thing that has come out of this yeah. crisis that I'm very very excited by. You know, of course the other, the other part of the crisis that's been really good. It gave good old Mother Earth a bit of a break from all of our human activity. And uh, it gave us a moment to sit down and say, geez, maybe, maybe we've got it all wrong. Maybe we've got to start dealing with issues in a, a more holistic way. You know, during the lockdown, there was uh, George Floyd murdered, ignited the, the Black Lives Movement in Canada. It's Indigenous Lives Matter. Um, and then we see the inequities in our society. You know, most of the uh, deaths so far have been old old people. So the elderly are more susceptible. But most of the elders who have died have been in homes run for profit. And I think that's very, very significant. The minute you have something running for profit, whether it's a fossil fuel industry, pharmaceutical industry, or caring for our elders, you cut corners. 
And that's always been the history of for-profit uh, <clears throat> corporations. And I thought that was a very revealing thing about who, uh, who the people who are dying uh, are and how they're being treated. And of course, <laughs> I thought a very revealing moment early on was Trump's response. Well, you know, it's the old people and uh, we've got to keep the economy going. So basically, let them all go. That's, uh, that's not a serious impediment to the, uh, uh, to the economy, which has become the most important thing. And that uh, seems, to, mind. seems to have been what some of his, or clearly at least one of his uh, medical advisors, uh, health advisors, has been telling of, of late and moving into that whole kind of herd immunity argument. Let me back you up a little bit to to uh, the uh, vaccines you mentioned, the Pfizer and Moderna. And yeah. I, I'm intrigued at how excited, how quickly you've become about these two. I mean, their efficiency rates or efficacy rates are extremely high, both in the uh, right. low or mid-90s, which is like kind of unheard of for vaccines. Um, but always in the past, we've, we've, we've been hesitant, you know, a society on on a new vaccine um and usually vaccines in the past have taken a, you know a long time this has been like remarkable yeah. it's been so quick um but you seem you seem to be more on the sort of excited side than you are on the hesitant side and is there well, a reason I, for I, that well i i mean i don't know about hesitancy i thank goodness there are all of these steps that any new vaccine has to go through before it's approved up because there are the side effects and uh uh, other possibilities. And of course, we need all of that because it, each vaccine is a novel vaccine. But uh, I'm shocked at the whole anti-vax movement, which just boggles my mind. One of the great contributions of medical science was the discovery of vaccines. And, you know, it, it uh, came out in Louis Pasteur's time when uh, smallpox was a killer. It killed millions of people. And if you survived, you were terribly scarred by it. And you and I, when we were kids, smallpox was a very real threat. But what they found in the 19th century was that uh, women, girls who milked cows, back then there weren't milking machines, humans had to milk the cows, that they were resistant to smallpox. And they figured out what the heck's going on, and they discovered that they would be infected by cowpox, which is a virus specific to cows that don't affect us negatively, but we're close enough related to smallpox that our bodies responded to that and made, uh, and made antibodies, and they were immune. And that was the basis for vaccines. And, you know, one of the great achievements of modern medical science is smallpox has been extinct now around the world. This big killer every year is now extinct and has been for several decades. That was a great achievement. But then because of, of a paper that came out uh, from England suggesting that uh, vaccines were somehow causing um, a rise in rates of autism, and that was uh, then picked up by uh, people in the media, and suddenly um, and a whole anti-vax movement started and that has been shocking uh to me i'm they uh, i guess there's some kind of conspiracy to to prevent us from knowing that uh, uh there's some additive to the vaccine 
I don't know that's causing uh, damage. I, 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 I'm shocked at that. Yes, of course we have to be cautious, but this new vaccine is very, very different. If you don't mind a little bit of sure. science, you know, normally we respond to an invading organism by recognizing that that organism is different from us. And we usually respond to the proteins on the surface of the bacterium or the virus. It has a surface protein that's not found in our bodies. So our bodies immediately react to, uh, to get rid of it. Now, that, that takes time. Uh, and usually it's a race between our body's ability to recognize these proteins and manufacture enough antibodies to uh, neutralize the invader. And um, what vaccines do is they accelerate that process of uh, generating antibodies and becoming resistant. Normally, then, what you do to induce resistance is you take, if it's a virus, you take a virus that's killed or you take a virus that's been severely uh, um, engineered so it can't reproduce. And then you inject the dead virus or the remnants of a virus and into our bodies. And we respond to that by seeing a foreign uh, body. That's the normal way you generate a vaccine. The antigen, what generates it is usually a protein you inject into the body. What this does is radically different. What they do is take the actual message. In this case, it's RNA, ribonucleic acid, which is a genetic material of the virus. They've been able to pick up the gene that specifies what these spikes, you know, the spike proteins that allow the virus to glom onto our cells and inject into it. They take the gene for the spike protein and then surround it with a membrane, uh, a fatty membrane. So they've now got the RNA in, and they use that to stick it into uh, our cells where that piece of RNA starts being read by our cells and we start making in our cells spike proteins. And then our bodies go, hey, this doesn't belong here, and they begin to, to destroy it. So that means if we can find the genes that are responsible for these surface proteins of any new virus, we can now embed those in our in our cells and induce an immune response. It's a very, very exciting approach, I think. It's completely new. And so what, you know, once we've dealt with the coronavirus, the COVID-19, once we've dealt with it, with these new vaccines, what could that methodology lead to? What could it mean for the future? Well, we're always going to have a lag because what enabled this uh, new technique was very quickly the Chinese isolated the virus and we have the techniques now that are, you know, when I started as a geneticist, they were, we never dreamt you'd be able to pick up a piece of DNA or RNA and actually get the arrangement of message in that within, within days. I mean, it's astonishing what they can do now. So isolate the virus and immediately find out what the various uh, genes in that virus uh, nucleic acid are, and then pull one out and and start encasing it in a, a lipid, a fatty membrane, and start testing it. So it would accelerate, I think, very, very uh, rapidly our time from discovery of the virus to the time that we have something that 
that works. But of course, there's all the testing that's got to go on and make sure, you know, you got to test it in a large population, get the data and show no side effects. All of that's got to be done. So it's not like discover a virus and next week we have a vaccine. Even now, the Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccines are looking very, very good. It is going to be, I think, until next year, the end of next year, before we'll, we'll have enough um, people inoculated to say that the uh, the threat is over. It's it's going to take a while. You know, and the immediate problems, are, I think the rich countries are going to pay money, buy a, a, a share of that, although I gather Bill Gates has now uh, invested a lot of money to ensure that there will be uh, samples for the developing world, which is great. Uh, but then the question is, you know, as the samples start coming in, who's going to get it first? And uh, well, you know, you're quite right because when when you look at the lineup of who's already pre-ordered from these various yeah. companies, even if they haven't uh, shown that they have uh, a successful vaccine yet, but when you look at the countries that have ordered already pre-ordered, they're all the rich countries, and at the top yeah. of the list, you know, per capita is Canada. Now, in Canada's defense, they are saying we've got, you know, if all of these come through, we've got way more than we need. We will ensure that these go to countries that that uh, do need it, and we'll, you know, we'll cover that cost. Um, yeah. So, let, you know, let's 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 hope that that is the case. Um, I want to ask you one other thing before I, I get to the, one of the main reasons we, we we've got you on the podcast today, and that is, you know, I've noticed other people have noticed. You know, we live in Stratford, uh, which is, you know, an hour, as you know, and about an hour and a half outside of Toronto, a great uh, little city, 30,000 people, whatever. Um, and, and we live a pretty healthy lifestyle here. But I've noticed this year that in the gardens, things are much greener. You know, flowers have grown much better. It's, <laughs> it's you know, it, 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 it seems to me, you know, some people think I'm crazy, but I'm pretty sure of this. I've been looking at this garden for 20 years, and this years look different. And we're right on a – we're also – you know, quite apart from less traffic around, we're right on a flight path in and out of Pearson Airport in Toronto for planes coming from the from the west, from the south, from overseas. You name it, they they often come past and through uh, over Stratford. So when I look up in the sky all this summer, and I used to see you know those jet trails all the time, exactly. it was much less frequent. So I'm, exactly. you know, I'm trying to draw some, you know, <laughs> conclusion from all those factors and saying we've just been through a period of eight months or so with much less greenhouse gas than we've ever been in, yeah. you know, certainly in recent time. So we're yeah. actually seeing the impact of what it what it could mean. So am I, well, am I, I think- stretching the uh, the possibilities here, or is there something in this? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, if you're a, a very experienced gardener or, you know, you this is an important part of your life, observing that, you know, it feels like something is, uh, you know, they're, they're growing sooner or faster or whatever, that could very well be. I mean, farmers have been telling us for a number of years they can see the impact of climate change. You know, they're, they're for one thing, they can uh, start planting earlier they can harvest later, and uh, they're having problems with water and uh, the heat in the summer. So, yes, there there are these things that we might 
when we're locked down, uh, notice more because we're spending more time. You know, from my standpoint, uh, it was shocking. I was locked down uh, at our cabin on an island, and it was shocking to suddenly be able to see rows of mountains way in the distance I'd never seen before, you know, and <laughs> out, in the, out in the country. And, of course, the silence, so that suddenly birds and insects become, you know, one of the major sources of sound was amazing. And immediately with the lockdowns, you started hearing, oh, their porpoises have come back to the canals of Venice and they're seeing coyotes and wolves in the middle of Toronto. And, and so people are saying, look at nature has bounced back. No, I don't think so. I think what's happened is in, in the shutdown, nature has kind of crept back out and uh, we can we can see them now, you know, but it certainly was a moment for the, to give nature a reprieve. And um, one of the most stunning uh, reports I read in the early days of the of the lockdown was that, you know, it hit China. Of course, that's where the virus came from. It, 20 times the number of people who died of COVID-19 in China. 20 times that number survived because air pollution dropped down to such a low level. That means 20 times as many people were dying in China because of air pollution. And COVID-19 revealed that by shutting. And what the hell? China wants to crank their economy back up again? You know, that's nuts. And I thought Canada responded very, very well to the crisis. And um, I just hope that coming out of this now, um, the the attempt isn't made to get back to where we were before uh, COVID hit. Those are not normal times to begin with. We don't want COVID to be the new normal So the, and aim to get back to the old normal. The old way was not normal. But what what uh, what it tells us is we've got a number of problems you know we've got problems of uh, of what we do with our elders and i think we've got to begin to uh, use them because i was uh, for six months i was with three toddlers my grandchildren and my job was babysitting because i'm an early morning riser from six to twelve every day i was the guy that was up you know uh, washing them dressing them feeding them and taking them out for uh, foraging sessions. It was wonderful. And and we have elders, you know, who are kind of hived away. Well, we, I think we've got real opportunity to, to welcome our elders into meaningful roles in a different way. It was very interesting. The, my, one of my daughters is married to a Haida and lives in, on the reserve in Haida Gwaii. And uh, the response of the Haida to the threat of COVID was amazing. They just locked down the community because they were terrified that their elders would be hit. And they literally shut those islands uh, down. Then they had an infection. They were in Masset. They were able to hive that off and, and stop it. I hear there's another one just got up there now. But it's the same in the community of Bella Bella, the Hiltzik people who I've had a lot to do with and um, they did the same thing. One of their um, big money raisers uh, of employers is the herring row industry. The herring come in large numbers and lay their eggs on uh, kelp. 
And when you gather that, that's a very, very expensive uh, product. The Japanese pay huge amounts. You know, one little bit of, of these herring roe would be like 30 or 40 bucks. So for the Hiltzuk, there are a lot of Hiltzuk that live in Vancouver. They come up every year for the herring roe season. They make their, uh, their money at that time. When COVID came in, the herring season started, and the people in Bella Bella said, don't come. Do not come. Even though these people depended on that herring roe fishery, they did not want to threaten their elders, and they just locked the community down. And so that's a very, very interesting, uh, you know, they value their elders. And Peter, you and I, <laughs> that's an important Our lesson. Is, you know, people ought to value us, even though we're these old uh, doddering codgers. Uh, I think we still have things to contribute. So still got a few laps in the pool, as we say, um, <laughs> let's get to, uh, uh, this has been fascinating and you, I've learned so much and I know the listeners have learned a lot just listening, uh, to the way you've described these different elements to this story. But the one element that we haven't touched is this has in many ways been an inspiration for you to start something you hadn't done before, which is a podcast. So <laughs> tell me why, um, David Suzuki is now going to do a podcast. Well, for one thing, it's a hell of a lot easier than, uh, doing television. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, my first love was always radio. I loved it when I, we started quirks and quarks and I did that for four years. Yep. And then I, as I got more involved with the, the nature of things gang, I, I had to make a choice. It were just uh, it was too much to do both at once, and I chose television because it, uh, television has such a, a powerful uh, emotional response to visuals. Ironically, uh, I think Quirks and Quarks now gets a bigger audience, at least on the first hearing, than the Nature of Things, which is quite amazing, uh, and that's a tribute to CBC Radio. I think anyway. I thought I still, you know, as an old timer, I've, I've got something still to, to share with the public. And my message has been very, very simple all these years, that the most important things in our lives are the things that keep us alive as biological creatures. You know, I asked the CEO of one of the largest com companies in the tar sands in Fort McMurray, I said, what do you think is the most important thing every human being needs? And rather than giving me an answer, he went, well, um, and I could see he's thinking, you know, a job, money, uh, a company. Like, I said, Mr. CEO, if you don't have air for three minutes, you're dead. If you have to breathe polluted air, you're sick. So don't you think that clean air is this incredible gift from nature? that we need and share with all other organisms on the planet, that clean air is this magnificent gift, we should have a responsibility to protect that air. Whatever we do, we shouldn't do anything to impede the, the clarity of that air. And uh, then I went through, you know, you and I are 60 to 70% water by weight. We're a big blob of water with enough thickener added. We don't dribble away on the floor, but we do leak water. It comes out of our skin and our eyes and our mouth and our crotch, and we lose water. If, I said, Mr. CEO, if you don't have water for four to six days, you're dead. 
If you have to drink polluted water, you're sick. So is clean water. So, you know, I tried to construct the a bottom line that as a living, as a human being, we could all agree on. I said, there's no point to this CEO. I said, why, why are we discussing pipelines and carbon taxes and, and climate change and all that if we don't start with a point of agreement on what the foundation of our, our lives uh, really are? And that's, and that's been my message all along. We're created by clean water, clean soil that gives us our food. Every bit of our food was once alive, and most of it was grown in the soil. And, we, and yet we regard soil as dirt. You know, you touch it and you get dirty. And like, wait a minute, now that's the source of the very nutrition that we need to live. And all of the, the energy in our bodies that we need to move and do work and grow and reproduce – is sunlight captured by plants in photosynthesis. So I thought, if we don't start, if we don't all understand that these are the fundamental elements of a life and our well-being, our survival, depends on clean air, clean water, clean soil and food, clean energy, and a diverse array of animals and plants around the world. That's the foundation of our lives and should be protected above anything else. And whatever we create, our legal systems, our economic systems, our political systems have to have incorporated into that, into those systems, an understanding that's the foundation of, of our lives and we have a responsibility to protect it. Uh, and so that's the basis of our podcast is it's called COVID-19 and the basic elements of life. And I start with a very simple uh, statement. We are animals. And as animals, we have needs that you have to pay attention to or you are not going to live long or live well. And what always shocks me is when I tell someone you're an animal, they go, I'm not an animal. I'm a human being. What the hell? I'm a biologist. You know? If they're not an animal, are they a plant? We are Animals, for God's sake, and that should be a primary understanding of all people. And so that's what we're trying to do in this. Um, if the season goes well, maybe we'll have another season. Just getting back to some fundamental things. And helping you get back to some fundamental things. you got some remarkable guests to name two, Jane Fonda and Neil Young. How do they fit into this? <laughs> well, uh, Jane, you know, is a friend from way back and, uh, I have to brag a little when I, I called her and uh, we were recording. And she said, David, I've got a picture of you right on my wall. And I, had, well, I can impressed. guess which picture it is. <laughs> no, not that one. No, no, no. No, it was a picture that she and I were in together. It was in Vanity Fair many years ago. And uh, there were a number of uh, number of people uh, at Tom Cruise's. And it, it, it was a picture from a meeting in Malibu, uh, California. Anyway, Jane has been a campaigner for, you know, a long time. And the first question was, Jane, when you started being an activist, you must have known that your your career was endangered. You remember Hanoi Jane when she went mm -hmm. to North Vietnam and, sure. you know, she got, took a beating for that. And she said, you know, I never felt alone. I never felt that I was out there, 
you know, being this activist, getting ready to be shot down. I always knew that there were people there defending me, out there working with me. And it's that sense of community that has enabled her to to be the, the outspoken one. And she's, you know, as a famous person, she's used her her fame uh, to it, attract attention to issues. She, I mean, she's a big hero of mine. You know, here she is, 82 or something, and still going strong. And, um, yeah, she's an inspiration. And I think, you know, bo- for both Neil and Jane, and, J- and Neil's the same way. My God, he's a campaigner. <laughs> Neil uh, asked me to go on a, a tour. We went a uh, four-city tour called Honor the Treaties. And all he's saying is, you know, we made promise, promises to Indigenous people in treaties. Now just honor them, live up to them. But uh, it was interesting to campaign with him because we had press conferences in all the cities that he was performing at. And uh, and immediately it was, you know, you're a musician. What the hell have you got to do with uh, uh, honoring the treaty or climate change? And he just, he said, because I'm a musician doesn't mean I don't have a brain. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I'm I'm speaking out on an issue that matters to me. And uh, again, uh, a man who's used his celebrity to attract the media in to give his message. So two people, uh, one thing I must say, he launched into this unbelievable Neil Youngish tirade about Trump, which <laughs> didn't end, hasn't ended up in the podcast. It was just so strong that we ended up cutting it out. But Neil is a, a great friend and a, wow, what a campaigner. He's great. That's good. You know, I, I love the way you dropped that in, you know, we were over at Tom Cruise's house and we were doing this and that, <laughs> and you know, Jane was there and this and that, you know, the next time you're hanging out at Tom Cruise's house and you need somebody to carry the bags, you know, give me a call. <laughs> I'll, I'll be there to, I'll be there to help you. Listen. Uh, yeah. David, this has been fantastic. I mean, you know, the, the, the podcast starts uh, later this month in, uh, in November. December 2nd. December 2nd now. Okay. Um, and I'm, it'll be easy to find. Uh, you can obviously just use David's name or uh, go in on the title, COVID-19 and the Basic Elements of Life. Uh, season one. You know, it's like the crown. Season four already. <laughs> So this is just season one of uh, of David's podcast, and let me just say one last thing because, it, you know, I I um I never really got to know my grandparents because we they were in England and we moved to Canada and I I didn't see them and this was kind of in the 1950s and then suddenly they were gone, um so I envy your grandkids who ah. have had this opportunity to be with you and through the lockdown. Uh, the things I'm sure they learned as you walked to, uh, on the beach or wherever you were walking with these kids in the in the early mornings, um, probably learning some of the things that we've learned in this last uh, you know 40 minutes or so on 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 this podcast. And uh, they're lucky kids because they will take that with them forever, and they'll tell their kids and their grandkids. Um, and so just as we will tell our friends what we've heard today from David Suzuki, David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Peter. It's a, it's a delight to see you again. And, uh, no, us old timers are still hanging in there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That's the, uh, bridge daily for this day, a special edition with, uh, David Suzuki. It's been a treat to be able to talk to you, David. Um, we'll be back as we say 
in 24 hours. 